Welcome to this Intelligence Squared event about Charles Dickens and Christmas Carol. And with me, Simon Callow, great Dickensian, of course, one of the country's best-loved stage and screen actors. You'll all know him from lots of things. He is the funeral in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and... <laughs> He, Simon, of course, has also written books about figures, including Oscar Wilde, Orson Welles and Dickens. His biography of Dickens is Charles Dickens and the Great Theatre of the World. And he's also written and starred in one-man shows, including A Christmas Carol, um, which I think, Simon, you've probably got imprinted on your cerebellum like nobody else since Dickens himself. And... His adaptation of Dickens's novella was shown on Channel 4 last weekend and you can still get it on catch-up. What we're going to do um, in this event, it's going to last about 50 minutes and we're going to try and take you into the book. So what we're doing is we've chosen a selection of short readings which take us through the, the beautiful, elegant progress of uh, of this work and we will in turn read out these re de these passages and 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 talk a little bit about them and why we've chosen them and and what they show us about how how extraordinary and how powerful this work has proved I'm going to go and see it only t tonight actually Simon I'm going to see one of the many theatre adaptations that are on and i I think I always say this, I'm pretty sure it's true, that it is the most frequently adapted work of fiction in the English language, for stage, for screen, for radio, you name it. So we're going to start, um, or I should also say, if you want to ask questions, and we'll, have, we'll leave some time for questions and for our, our attempted answers to them at the end, you can do that by clicking on the Ask Questions button under the video screen and typing in your question, and then we will tackle the questions at the end. So we're going to start. The first one is mine, <laughs> and it's the very beginning. And... In the very first sentence, it's got my favourite colon in English literature. <laughs> but anyway, I'll, I, will, I will read it and then we'll talk a little bit about it before Simon does his first reading. So this is how A Christmas Carol begins. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind? I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley 
was as dead as a doornail. Um, <laughs> my favourite colon, because it's, it's there after <laughs> Marley was dead, colon, to begin with. And of course, to begin with, because, you know, this is a sentence that's saying, first things first, let's start here, as, as if somebody was telling you a story, speaking it something that's not written but spoken. But of course, it's also, he's dead to begin with and he's about to be brought back to life. And I think only, you know, it, it, it's only Dickens really amongst great novelists who would dare do this, this thing of um, not like most elegant writers, avoiding cliches, but embracing the cliche, that sort of, normally dead bit of language which Dickens brings to life, brings back to life. And I think Dickens, I don't know what you think, Simon, those cliches brought back to life throughout Dickens. He loves playing with them and recognising there's a sort of frozen poetry of, it, of the English language, really. Um, and it takes Dickens to realise it. This wonderful and extraordinary thing, dead as a doornail, suddenly he starts talking about that. <laughs> And of course, as a man who was constantly criticised by his contemporaries, his fellow writers, for his inelegance of style, uh, his little comment about the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for, is very personal. And, uh, it, it, but it's also a wonderful start for a ghost story, um, because... That's what it says on the title page. Uh, and uh, Dickens loved ghost stories, and he'd already written several before uh, he wrote uh, Christmas Carol. Uh, but the immediacy of it, the ease with which he engages with us, he sucks us in straight away. And he always said that thing about, he liked to think that he was on the reader's shoulder, you know, whispering into his ear, all of that. But it's terribly... Um, conversational. Uh, but we, when, when uh, Tom Cairns was the director of my, my Christmas Carol show, and indeed of the, the film, that John just mentioned rather kindly just now, we had this feeling that it was rather like the soundtrack of a 1930s movie. It could be Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade. Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. The register for his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good for anything upon change that he chose to put his hand to. Oh, no, oh, Marley was there. It's absolutely, it's Dashiell Hammett, you know. I mean, and uh, it's a fascinating book in that way because it's so, a sort of magical performance, or, or, or generally he makes things appear and disappear and so on, but never loses contact with the audience that he's speaking to. So, of course, it became the first great reading that he did. And he read the whole thing one Christmas Eve, I think it was, or either Boxing Day uh, in Birmingham. He read the whole thing in three and a half hours. And so successful was it that they immediately asked him to do it again a day or two afterwards, which he gladly did. Um, no, it's, it's... Yeah, yeah. Very much a sort of a performance that's sort of happening in your ears as, as much as sort of on the page in front of you. And, and Simon, I think your, your first passage is just from a little further on in the first stave, as he calls it, isn't it? When he um, were really being introduced to Scrooge. Unbelievable, of course, that he actually made up the name Scrooge. It just seems like it must always have been there, surely, but no, yeah. 
Would you like to read us your bit? I, I, I would. Uh, and I, but I just say before reading it that it's um, a complete change. There's a complete change of tonality here. Suddenly he goes into something epic from having been easy and conversational. He takes us into myth. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone was old Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he, no falling snow more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, it was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. <laughs> And the knowing ones called nuts. That's um, that's a kind of Victorian idiom, isn't it? For for, yeah, for something yeah, very yeah. satisfying and pleasurable, I think. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. There are odd little uh, archaic phrases like that as we later. Hear oh yes. Well, we, we reserve that one. That's one of my favourites. Yeah. I'm looking yes. forward to. I'm looking forward to expanding on that. So it's got. It, it reminds me. It, it is extraordinary that passage because. As I said, it's epic. It's it's. I mean, it's Im impossible. It's completely unrealistic. It eschews psychology of any kind it, 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 or realism of any kind. This again is the sort of thing that his contemporaries thought contemptible in Dickens. They thought, why, why can't he just describe things as <laughs> they are 
and unravel people's psychology. But that isn't what Dickens' game was at all. And I think there's a there's a there's an almost direct link between Dickens and Chaucer. It, it overleaps Shakespeare almost, though he adored Shakespeare. But the 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 archetypes that he lands on these and these extraordinary um, built up images of people. I mean, no actor could play that at all. It's impossible. You you just simply can't do it. You, it's almost like a yes, cartoon. Yes. And a lot of Dickens's writing in this book is like, I often think that cartoon would be the absolutely ideal medium for Christmas Carol. Unfortunately, all the cartoons that have been made of it, I'm afraid to say I'm in one of them, is uh, just rubbish. Although I think Muppet Christmas Carol has something to be said in its favour, doesn't it? Uh, That's something else, and I'm yes, sure Dickens yes. would have loved no, it. No, I know, and listening to you read it, I mean, it, we were talking earlier about um, the, the, the colloquial rhythms of... Um, uh, of this story and it, it, it that that exaggeration you're talking about reminds me of the kind of things we do in speech which which are normally fenced off in in elegant prose you know you can hear somebody saying oh he's so miserable when he comes into the room everybody feels the cold that is what the that is what we say it's not normally what we write and dickens's genius i think partly was simply putting us in touch with the energies of speech. And it's it's there in the wonderful um, rhythms and listings. You know, he he gets a phrase and then it's almost incantatory. He repeats it, he repeats it, he piles it on. And again, you know, this is not proper writing, but it's wonderful enactment, isn't it? Totally. And it's, it's fundamentally, which I suppose is the big theme of uh, the book I wrote about him, it's fundamentally theatrical. And Dickens was absolutely immersed in the theatre to, to a degree, I, I, I think, uncommon, I mean, perhaps unknown in any other of the great writers. Uh, and that's, of course, why he was able to perform them so wonderfully uh, eventually. But the, the very the method, the procedure is essentially theatrical. You set something up on a on a grand scale, you put a line around it, you know, in a in a in a, in a, a an extraordinarily uh, vivid kind of way. Uh, it's exaggerated. It's it, it depends on exaggeration, just like the theatre of his own time, you know. And uh, um, uh, it, it's very um, uh, it, it's very very different from from. Imagine if George Eliot had decided to write a book about such a man. How utterly utterly different it would have been. It would have been built up of a thousand details, but Dickens does massive broad strokes like this. Yes, I love it. <laughs> well, <laughs> we get then we get then. Uh, he's visited, of course, by Marley's ghost. The ghost of Marley predicts that he's going to be visited by three spirits over three nights. And in stave two, he's visited by the first of these, the ghost of Christmas past. And the next passage is one that I've chosen, which is um, where Scrooge has the experience, which I think is, you know, to me, it's one of the most riveting bits of the tale, actually. Of that extraordinary idea being taken, which, which so much literature tries to do, but because Dickens has adopted this fantastic frame the ghost story he can actually do it of revisiting your own childhood seeing yourself seeing 
you know, the child is father to the man, as Wordsworth said, and and Scrooge is made painfully to see it. And he sees himself as, in this passage, as a boy on his own in the schoolhouse. And uh, everybody else has sort of gone off for the holidays and and there he is reading. And the kind of reading which once, before he became <laughs> Scrooge-like, entranced him, is brought alive. The characters, who are mostly characters from Tales from the Arabian Nights, which Dickens loved, um, actually come, come to life in this fantastic tale. And Scrooge, the older Scrooge, is, is sort of taken out of his bad self and entranced by it. Why? It's Alibaba, Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. It's dear old honest Alibaba. Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come for the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine, said Scrooge, and his wild brother Orson. There they go. And what's his name, who was put down in his drawers asleep at the gate of Damascus? Don't you see him? And the sultan's groom, turned upside down by the genii. There he is upon his head. Serve him right, I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? To hear Scrooge expending all the earnestness of his nature on such subjects in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited face would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city indeed. There's the parrot, cried Scrooge, green body and yellow tail with a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of his head. There he is. Poor Robin Crusoe, he called him when he came home again after sailing round the island. Poor Robin Crusoe, where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life to the little creek. Halloa, hoop, halloo! Then, with a rapidity of transition very foreign to his usual character, he said, in pity for his former self, poor boy, and cried again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. It's wonderful, isn't it? And, and it's, it's, it's him. He's talking, writing about himself. This is, this is exactly his childhood reading. And uh, uh, he, he immersed himself in it completely. And uh, during the terrible days of his working in the blacking factory while his father was in debtor's jail and all of that, these are the books that he consoled himself with. They, they liberated him, freed him up, gave him fantasy, access to fantasy. And he loved them all his life. And, and, and whole scholarly volumes have been written about the influence of the Arabian Nights on Dickens's writing. And I think it's spot on. That's exactly... That's, that's, it's, what, it's wonderful, isn't it, that um, it says earlier on in... in a Christmas Carol, that um, Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. And and uh, Dickens was a great believer in fancy as a sort of humanising, I think, and, and a necessary thing. And you mentioned the Arabian Nights. The other thing there that intrigues me, which hasn't, I think, been much written about or observed, is... Uh, the influence of Robinson Crusoe, and I'm going to hazard this assertion, 
Simon, you might know differently because I'm not sure I can quite prove it. But I think that Robinson Crusoe is the literary work, apart from Shakespeare, mentioned most often in Dickens's novels. It's 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 everywhere. And it was an absolute favourite of his. And I remember in Hard Times, for instance, um, there's a library in Coke Town and, 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 and Dickens says, you know, it, it was set up, they were supposed to go there and read improving tracts. And what they do, the locals, is they go, um, you know, on their one day off and they go and read Daniel Defoe novels instead, you know, <laughs> because that's what really touches the human in them and excites their powers of fancy. And he, he adored Robinson Crusoe, I think, for that reason. But fancy is a wonderful word that his fancy and fantasy is everywhere. Even in the, the darkest novels, in Bleak House, the, the personification of things, of fog and all the rest of it, is that's very much in this tradition, this, this, this fairy tale tradition. And also, uh, I must say, it, uh, it links up to his theatre going because the pantomimes were full of events like this. Extra this was... The, the, the absolute magic of pantomime was transformation, things suddenly going from being one thing to being another, or the exotic, uh, the, the, all that sort of enchantment. And uh, it, I think it, it was a, a, it, it is another reason why so many um, you know, right-thinking people thought that Dickens was just not to be taken seriously because he was immersing himself in children's books, children's literature. He was... He was just not an adult, not a proper adult. Um, it's, um, but I, I, I'm thrilled that you chose that passage. I, I, I couldn't include it in my own show, and nor did Dickens when he read it. But it's, it's, it's absolutely central. I, I've always thought. Okay, well, great. I completely agree, and and I think now we can go on to we we've actually got a a, a couple of um, passages that Simon's chosen, and. Well, tell us what the, the first short one is going to be, Simon. The, the first one is, is um, by now the spirit of Christmas past has forced Scrooge to confront uh, his slow ossification, which has already started, you know. And when he says goodbye, or rather his girlfriend says goodbye to him because now he only worships money. We never know why this happened. The, the, it's in the nature of this kind of a book. It just happens. He becomes upset, despite the fact that he's been uh, apprenticed to the Fezziwigs, which is uh, a joyous organisation and filled with laughter and, and good goodwill to all people. He slowly turns towards money and she sees that and she says, We're, and that he can't bear that. Scrooge can't bear that anyway. He dismisses the spirit of Christmas present and is then next visited by that huge giant a benevolent giant sitting on top of a great pile of food, uh, um, the spirit of Christmas present. And the spirit of Christmas present takes him round, showing how other people know how to celebrate Christmas, which Scrooge is unable to do. And, and the most telling visit of all, he, they go to Fred's and all the rest of it, the most telling one of all is the Cratchits, who have no money at all. And they make... And that famous and wonderful scene of the, the arrival of the goose and all of that, and then the pudding and so on, they, they turn it into mythic things, you know, as Dickens does. He, they, they transmogrify them into something meaningful and wonderful. 
And they tell stories and they sing songs and Tiny Tim uh, sings a song. And then Dickens has this wonderful paragraph. It's it's so almost like the opposite of everything else in, in, in his style. It's so simple. It's ordinary language. But it, it to me, has always moved me in performing it. I, I have to fight back tears a little because it's so essentially good-hearted. He says, after, you know, the, the, the games and, the, and so on have gone on, Dickens says, there was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. And it's the, the beginning of Scrooge beginning to to understand, to sympathise with other human beings and so on. But it's just a phrase like, like that, they're, they're, they were not a handsome family, they were not well-dressed, their shoes were far from being waterproof. But they were happy, contented with the time. It's just, and that sort of simple eloquence of Dickens's is always grabs me. We all know that he was quite capable of tipping over into sentimentality, not as much as he's accused of, but especially if it involved a young woman crying, then he tended to collapse completely in the face of that. But this sort of thing, I, I just find that that's magisterially simple and yeah. effective. And that's quite a the aspect which Dickens is both reproved and loved for of this tale, that, that sort of Christmas brings out the best of people or should bring out the best of people means that rather unexpectedly actually compared to some of his novels where he takes you into the the habitations of of the poor and the overworked and the belaboured the strip the in christmas carol when that happens because you visit you visit mines and people on on fishing boats in the middle of the atlantic and it turns out that these people are actually capable of happiness and and contentment you know and that and so so christmas is 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 the spirit of that of discovering that actually you know you can you can be happy <laughs> yeah absolutely which is which was his fundamental political philosophy which is that you 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 can't look to other people for these things you have to find them in yourself and that's why he supported so strongly all the working men's uh, educational organisations and indeed working men's organisations generally because he was a political pessimist of the of the most extreme kind. He said, I mean, he despised the parliament of his day, which was not so very much better than the parliament of our day, unfortunately, but uh, uh, he absolutely despised it. And uh, uh, he, 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 he said, you never look to politicians to give you anything or sort anything out for you. You must do it for yourself. And so he he, he poured his energy into all these organisations 
of, of self-help, but not quite in the Samuel Smiles sense of, uh, you know, Puritan sense of get on with it. Not at all. Dickens was the opposite of a Puritan. But he just said, look, guys, it's never going to happen unless you do it. Organize, organize yourselves and you will make your own life better and then no one can take it away from you. I mean, you know. That was his view. But uh, in, um, um, in, in the Christmas card, of course, he, he, he goes on with, with the spirit of uh, Christmas present uh, to see all kinds of, as John was just saying, all, all, all the very excellent uh, you know, things that people devise to amuse themselves at Christmas time. And then uh, he, he goes to his cousins, and of course they're having a wonderful time sending Scrooge himself up and even Scrooge looking at them manages to laugh at himself. Now there's a wonderful breakthrough too. But as uh, the, the scene fades, the spirit, this extraordinarily warm, generous, vigorous spirit of Christmas past, uh, sorry, a Christmas present I'm talking about, of Christmas present um, begins to sag and to look feeble. And in an extraordinary visionary passage which brings us absolutely back to the original inspiration for A Christmas Carol, which was not to celebrate Christmas or, 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 or to spread a lot of good-humoured uh, um, benevolence around, but as a direct protest against what he and most of his horrified fellow countrymen had read in the not-so-long-ago so not so published parliamentary report on the condition of children working in the mines in the factories which revealed a whole substratum of absolute depravity of those children being exploited uh, rarely seeing the light hardly being paid at all dying young and in agony it's a shocking shocking document i mean shocking even now i mean particularly now when it, it's so far from common practice, but for Dickens and his friends, and he determined, he said, to strike a hammer blow against all of this. And what he did wasn't at all to make a speech, which is his original plan. He wrote A Christmas Carol. And right at the centre of A Christmas Carol is this vision, which is, uh, as, as the spirit begins to fade, uh, Scrooge, from the foldings of its robe, Scrooge sees uh, the uh, spirit of Christmas present brings out two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here, look, look down here exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy and girl, yellow, meagre, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glanced out, menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade through all the mysteries of wonderful creation. 
as monsters, half so horrible and dread. Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them. And they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both, and all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching out its hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your factious purposes and make it worse. And abide the end. Have they no refuge or resource, cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons, said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. And the spirit disappears. And, of course, that refers right back to uh, uh, the, very, the very first scene in, in Scrooge's office when some gentlemen come to, to try to get some money for the poor who suffer so terribly, as they say, at this time of year. And the thing that's, of course, always so depressing is that plus uh, change, you know, where, where are we now? It's, it's, it's a, yes, it's striking, isn't it? The, um, the two two especially Dickensian turns of logic in it. First of all, that they are, that these wolfish couple are also prostrate in their humility. How, how, you know, you think of Uriah Heep, you think of how humility goes with deprivation and resentment. And, and then most of all, beware ignorant, you know, most of all, beware the boy. That's worse, even worse. But I mean, it, 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 can you quarrel with his analysis? He says that these are the source of almost all that is wrong in the world. Ignorance and want. I mean, if, as we look round the globe today, are these not the two villains of the piece still? Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. 
Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. And it's the one, it's the one bit of A Christmas Carol in a way where the narrative sort of escapes from Scrooge's own history and his own fate and character, isn't it? It's the one bit where Dickens, I, I think really tellingly, but still he he let himself veer off a bit, didn't he? And and as you said at the beginning, say something about about the world of his readers. But I wonder if we could go to the to the the next one's Simons as well, which is from Stay four, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, where of course um, Scrooge. I think even you know any first-time reader or hearer of 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 the story will know that Scrooge is being presented with the evidence of his own death, but he, as they as we say nowadays, is in denial. I think about that and won't accept that till it's absolutely thrust on him. And I, and Simon, you've chosen a, a, a little passage where he hears people talking about somebody who's died. Yeah, and it's, it, 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 what's very uh, interesting about it, very vivid about it, is that it's in the city of London, which is where Scrooge sits amassing all this money and denying people uh, 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 the proper uh, lives and access to all the things that make life possible uh, in the very city of London, which is, you know, uh, um, uh, the, 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 I think early in the, when he sees Marley's face on the door knocker, he says uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the Scrooge being a man of no imagination, it says, uh, uh, um, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase now, but it's about uh, 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 of which there is very little to be found in the city of London. Um, but uh, uh, so these are people he's dealt with and who know him. These are stockbrokers. And uh, it's a wonderful little vignette, this scene, tiny little scene, um, typical of this book, which is made up of thousands of little shards of brilliant, realistic insight. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Observing that the hand and the spirit of Christmas yet to come it has no face and no voice, just a hand that points, points towards the next terrible revelation. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Observing that the hand was pointed to them, Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? inquired another. Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? asked a third, taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff box. I thought he'd never die. God knows, said the first, with a yawn. And what has he done with his money? asked the red-faced gentleman with a pendulous excrescence on the end of his nose that shook like the gills of a turkey cock. I haven't heard, 
said the man with the large chin, yawning again. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. But I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, observed the gentleman with the excrescence on his nose. So it's his own kind who've turned against yeah. him. Yeah, life goes on. It's, yes, it's... <laughs> and as they say, you can't take it with you. Um, <laughs> so all this money he's amassed goes nowhere, does nothing and spares him not at all from the mockery of the men with whom he makes his living. Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's both very funny and chilling as well. Uh, um, the, 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 I think it gets even more chilling. Then the, next, the next passage, which is my choice, um, comes from quite soon after this, where Scrooge is shown in a particularly benighted corner of London, this man who is who's a scavenger, and he he makes his thin living from the pickings that he gets of things that he doesn't have to pay for, but can can sort of sell for some small sum. And uh, to his lair come two women and a man, a charwoman. So she's the sort of she's Scrooge's cleaner, as it were. The, or the person who's made him the odd meal, perhaps. The laundress who's responsible for cleaning his clothes and his bedding. And the undertaker's man. And, of course, they have all been stealing from Scrooge, stealing from him in death. And it's a, it's a particularly, I think, horrible vision of how Scrooge, the sort of, the mean predator becomes himself an an object of predation um so joe it starts with joe the man to whom they're selling their stuff expressing his admiration that the charwoman has actually managed to steal the bed curtains from around the bed <laughs> so she's you know she's rather ingenious you were born to make your fortune said joe and you'll certainly do it I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching it out for for the sake of such a man as he was. I promise you, Joe, returned the woman coolly. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? asked Joe. Whose else's, do you think? replied the woman. He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh? said old Joe stopping in his work and looking up. Oh, don't be afraid of that, returned the woman. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Ah, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting it, asked old Joe. 
putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure, replied the woman with a laugh. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Horrible. It's a terrible, horrible oh. in the horrible oh. intimacy of it, which which and you're listening to this as it were with Scrooge, aren't you? His very body stripped of the last things that it might be thought to own. But as you say, that he d- simply doesn't see it. He doesn't realise it's him. He thinks it's some poor man. He's feeling compassion for somebody that he doesn't understand is himself. Because that's the that that's the whole process of the book, isn't it? It's like a it's like a like a therapy, really. Scrooge has prescribed himself a therapy whereby he has to be finally reconciled to himself. It, it it isn't good enough just for him to start to love mankind. He's got to forgive himself too, you know. It also has that structure of a I don't know of a a legend, a fairy tale, say, where as a as a reader or a listener you can absolutely see what's happening. You can see it. You know, you can almost shout out, don't you realise? It's you. And and you know that because this is a, a, a story about conversion, <laughs> um, as it were, that he has got to finally realise something terrible, realising, realise at the end of stay four that this stripped, bare, forked animal who has died, whom no one loves, whom no one cares about, is him. That's him. And, and like you say, so it's brilliant, isn't it? It's, as you say, it's both therapy and fairy tale. It's both psychologically true and narratively inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. And then we get, we do get our happy ending, <laughs> of course, of course. And um, uh, I'm going to read a little bit just from stave five, um, where Scrooge wakes up to find it's Christmas Day, that although he's endured these three terrible nights, uh, terrible in their different ways, actually time has been concertinaed. It's, it, it is still the next day, Christmas Day. And he intuits that this means he has a chance. He has a chance um, to be different. And he accosts in the street a boy in Sunday clothes in his sort of Christmas best. What's today, my fine fellow? said Scrooge. Today, replied the boy. Why, Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day, said Scrooge to himself. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Hello, returned the boy. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? Scrooge inquired. I should hope I did, replied the lad. An intelligent boy, said Scrooge. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey, the big one. 
What? The one as big as me, returned the boy. What a delightful boy, said Scrooge. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. <laughs> it's hanging there now, replied the boy. Is it, said Scrooge. Go and buy it. Walker, exclaimed the boy. No, no, said Scrooge. I am in earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here, that I, might, that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at a trigger who could have got a shot off half so fast. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's, whispered Scrooge, rubbing his hands and splitting with a laugh. He shan't know who sent it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. Um, <laughs> and there's little bits of, um, of uh, little, some more little bits of Victorian idiom you mentioned at the Right at the beginning, Simon, Walker, which apparently is a sort of cockney for expression of of disbelief or incredulity. And um, nobody, not even the Reverend Oxford English Dictionary, knows what the origins of it apparently. Apparently it was a phrase, <laughs> hooky walker, you said, if you didn't believe something. Pull the other one. Hooky walker. <laughs> I think we should restore it, don't you, Simon? Restore it. I really do. Instead of your kidding, <laughs> Hooky Walker, much better. I, and, and at the, I hear it coming up yes, in parliamentary can. debates. Great, rather nicely, Hooky but. Walker. Um, and <laughs> at the end, he mentions Joe Miller never made such a joke. And Joe Miller's jest book, apparently, was a, a book starting in the 18th century and named after a, a, a sort of um, a Georgian Simon Callow, I think. Um, <laughs> a sort of book of this thespian's favourite jokes, and it became a sort of uh, a, 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 an anthology, anthology that was a byword for sort of um, favourite jokes. So <clears throat> there's those bits of contemporary idiom, but um, yeah, apparently, I mean, you'll probably know more about this than 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 I do, Simon. You know, one of the great things about hearing. Dickens perform any of the extracts from his novels that he went on to do after he'd sort of done A Christmas Carol, but also hearing him perform Christmas Carol was doing the, the voices. And, and, and apparently the voice of the boy was a particular favourite. He must, I'm trying to imagine how Dickens went, Walker! <laughs> uh, yes. Well, you know, of course, he had an astonishing ear. And as a, as a, a young clerk, solicitor's clerk, a job that he detested, uh, after the end of his exactly two years of education, which is all he ever had, um, he wandered the streets of London. He learned London, just like a black cab driver. He got the knowledge and he knew ev the accent of every single different part of London, could instantly, like a sort of Henry Higgins, identify where you came from. And uh, so he would have done those voices with absolute precision and it might for his audience have told them where where the guy came from you know and uh, or he might have imitated a famous actor of the day as well because he remained steeped in the yeah, well my absolutely. I'm afraid my sort of nondescript estuary English is a poor approximation of that <laughs> experience <laughs> but we've got some questions Simon so I'm going to I'll I sort of look we've got 
yes, let, let me lob one or two at you. Yes. Um, so the first one was uh, something we sort of touched on with the Muppets, the Dear Muppet version, which film adaptation of A Christmas Carol do you each think is best? So what, what about you, Simon? Uh, I, I, I have always loved Brian Desmond Hurst's wonderful film starring uh, Alistair Sim as Scrooge and with all kinds of wonderful actors uh, um, uh, playing all these very famous parts. It, it's, it's, it's quite old-fashioned as a piece of film, but why not? Um, but but uh, Alistair Sim himself is just sublime. But I'm now going to say something which is completely unforgivable, which is that I think that our version, the one that I shot, is the best, because for, 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 for a very particular reason, which is just as when I did it in the theatre, because it's just one person speaking, I am able, as it were, to have to use, to, to channel the voice of Charles Dickens himself. Whereas if you dramatise it, that's the thing you lose. You have all the characters, but you never have that thing we were talking about at the beginning of Dickens sitting on your shoulder and actually whispering in your ear. And, and I think that we had to cut a lot. It's only 75 minutes long and so on, but it is very, very direct storytelling. And I, I'm, I'm very satisfied with it, I, I have to say. I'm <laughs> no, no, I think ego te absolvo. Oh. I think that <laughs> I think that's, that's you believe in your own. I would just like to say that actually we mentioned it slightly in jest, but I agree very much about Alistair Sim. I was hoping you weren't going to say it because then I could have said it. But, 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 but I, I do think because my own experience of it that actually... The Muppet Christmas Carol is jolly good. And Michael Caine playing absolutely straight, surrounded by puppets. He plays it absolutely, really, really well. And uh, But I have a personal reason, which is simply that I do remember watching it on television um, with my children when they were quite young. And they so young that they wouldn't, I think, have watched a non-Muppet version. I think they were too young. for, them. And they were absolutely entranced by it. And they knew the Muppets. And the, somehow the fact that the Muppets were involved, you know, convinced them that Dickens was indeed a genius, you know. <laughs> and, and it showed the extraordinary robustness of the tale, actually, that you could do that with it. Indeed. Although it it has to be said that it uh, because of its becoming such a on almost an annual event in the theatre, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's not actually a children's book. It deals with things which children would find quite hard to grasp, um, and uh, I think uh, there's a lot of terror in it. I, it was the first piece of theatre I ever saw when I was seven years old, and it scared the hell out of me and I thought no more Dickens for me please it was just too frightening it was in the round and I just I, I, I was shaking afterwards uh, um, and I still think that that element is never far from it as it never is with Dickens he was he knew all about terror and anguish uh, and he, he covered it wonderfully with with this astonishing humor and inventiveness but right down there inside there's there's dread and and anguish and guilt and all of that and i think you need to 
do those things. I mean, I've done the panto version of it uh, in Lincoln <laughs> years ago, and uh, um, it was just uh, it was just a sort of romp, basically. But uh, it can't. It, in the end, it, it, it's bigger than that. I think. I mean, it was. Uh, I'm just going to anticipate uh, the next question, which is: Was Christmas Carol an immediate? It certainly was an immediate success, and and Dickens knew it would be. I mean, he wrote it at high speed in six weeks while he was still writing Martin Jusselwit, and he absolutely knew. I mean, he was just thrilled. And there's descriptions of how afterwards he rushed off to a party and danced like a madman and did conjuring tricks and everything because he knew he hit the nail on the head, and it was he wanted it to reach everybody so he uh, but but interesting enough he's always having fights with his publishers and uh, he pub he self-published it he, he 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 paid for his publishers to actually put it together and he wanted it to be beautiful and it had gold uh, uh, around the side of the pages and the the leather uh, uh, binding was exquisite and all of that and it sold out it just massively sold out but he was this is the wonderful paradoxes of Dickens. He was very upset because he didn't make any much money out of it. But it was, not only was it a huge success, but it also won over some of his critics. And even Thackeray and people like that said, you know, how can you criticise a book like this? It's a public benefit. And, and it really reached the heart. And I think this is the exact moment... Dickens was hugely successful already. He'd written um, uh, Pickwick Papers, Nicholas Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop, uh, um, Oliver Twist, all of these great novels. Um, hugely popular and successful. But this was the one in which he just absolutely reached the heart of the British people, and in fact, people all over the world. Uh, it became, it was sort of almost beyond just a book. It became a sort of article of, of faith or something. It became an expression of a philosophy, which he ever after the rest of his life called it Carol philosophy, which is the, you know, the instinct to be generous and for the whole of society to hold hands yeah. with each other. I mean, I think, yes, the, the, the fact of him not making the money that he hoped or expected out of it um, was is, is very telling because, I mean, D Dickens, of course... You talked some about his extraordinary success, which is certainly true. And yet, you know, he's still at the stage of his career, isn't he, where he's not he's not confident. Perhaps he never became completely confident, however best selling he was, that the next one would sort of do it. And and it was yes, it wasn't so popular. And he had, as they say, a high maintenance domestic economy, didn't he? he? Had lots of lots of kind of hangers on, not least his own parents, big, large family, and also large. He himself had large, sort of sociable ambitions, didn't he? You know, a Christmas Carol celebrates sociability and entertaining and eating and drinking. And he spent huge amounts on that himself. And, you know, it would have been a great thing to go to a Dickens party. But the outgoings were massive, weren't they? Massive, massive. I mean, he had when, this is much later, but uh, when he needed a, a scene on the riverbank for our mutual friend, uh, he uh, hired a pleasure steamer and filled it with uh, his friends uh, and had a small band 
uh, food and drink. This was just so as he could observe. The, so he was involved in absolutely everybody all the time. Very generous host, listening to people, laughing at people, dancing himself, pouring the wine, handing around the food and observing the scene on the riverbank and going home and writing it down in great detail. It was an extraordinary brain. I mean, just on the simple technical level of being able to observe and remember everything. Just I think we've got time for one more question and it's appropriately seasonal. Um, somebody asks, to what extent do we owe the modern Christmas to Dickens? What's your what are your thoughts about that, Simon? It's it it it's often said, I think, perhaps without much thought. Oh, Dickens invented Christmas, and indeed there was a film. There was a film uh, a few years ago. I'm in it. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. The man who invented yes. Christmas, and quite yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's simply not true. Uh, um, I mean, it's it, it's it's a terrible reduction of the, the what. How it actually worked, which is that, that Christmas was tremendously popular, and uh, Washington Irving, the great American writer who wrote, uh, um, uh, you know, um, Rip Van Winkle and, uh, and all of that stuff, had already written a, in a nostalgic vein about the old English Christmases. What what uh, and 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 they were already beginning to make Christmas cards and all these things were beginning to come in. The Christmas trees had arrived. And Dickens already had written about Christmas before he wrote Christmas Carol, lengthy essays about what, what a wonderful time Christmas was. But what he did was to make it about, precisely about, the uh, equality of pleasure in society and about the idea that so strongly expressed by Scrooge, which is, I will keep Christmas in my heart every day. If you can be that generous at Christmas, Keep it going for the rest of the year. Because th there were huge banquets thrown, for example, on Christmas Day by um, members of the upper classes. I mean, huge, like for, for 500 people or something, at which they themselves served the food. It isn't as if the whole country was just cut off from the idea of Christmas or generosity at Christmas. But his point was, OK, great, well, now roll it out. Let's have more of that. If you can do it, then do it always. And the very last, very, very last line, the most famous last line of all time is, and as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. It's not God bless us, everyone. It's God bless us, everyone, all of us. Not just just me, not just the rich, not just the, 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 the hard work. It's everyone must be blessed by this extraordinary yeah. festival. Well, that's a brilliant, a brilliant place to end. He didn't invent Christmas, but but the the perennial popularity of a Christmas Carol, which now is, I mean, it's like a ritual enactment, isn't it? And it, and it is, it 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 is uh, evidence enough of his kind of grip on our imagination generally, but also particularly when it when it comes to Christmas. Um, uh, please, if you've got, thank you very much for your questions. If you've got more thoughts, ideas, reactions, do tweet using the hashtag IQ2. Great thanks to Simon Callow, uh, to our audience, 
and to Intelligent Squared for uh, indulging me and Simon, really. That's what it amounts to, isn't it? <laughs> um, and you can all go to Play Again, Channel 4, and watch, listen to Simon do his thing. <laughs>